Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Richard Fay's workshop on finding manhood. In it, he looks at how understanding and integrating our identity as a man is key to our ability to walk alongside others in the way God has designed us to. Richard is the CEO of the Centre for Men, an organisation that champions the cause of healthy male spirituality in Australia. He also works as a counsellor and lecturer. My name is Richard and uh, I lead an organisation called the Centre for Men, though I don't like to call us an organisation, I'd rather refer to us as who we really are, which is a community. And if you knew anything about us, you'd realise how true that is because um, we don't have a building, we don't have a lot of money, we just have a bunch of blokes uh, seeking to become authentic, trying to work out what that is. For a white fellow, that's hard because we don't have any elders to teach us what it means to be a, a real authentic bloke. And I'll talk more about that. Uh, I want to open by honouring the original custodians of this land, the Wurundjeri people. We will have a walk in the country after this, which I would encourage you all to attend if you've never been to one. It's quite a wonderful experience. But just to start with, I want to honour them and honour the culture and tradition that they had and have in inhabiting and caretaking and tending this land. Not possessing, but inhabiting. I also want to honour the traditions and customs and cultures here. And I recognise that there are many Indigenous brothers here and sisters, which is tremendous. Um, howdy, welcome. So I want to say thank you for coming. And I want to make this as informal and inclusive as possible. So you can just speak up if you want to talk. This is not the expert up the front. One of the things about becoming uh, an authentic man is not being an expert. In fact, it's been the opposite of an expert. It's about being a novice. Being a beginner, having a beginner's mind, having the heart that, that's teachable. Tell me what I don't know, because I know nothing. Something that Socrates said two and a half thousand years ago. All I know is I don't know anything. He's a Greek man who got it. He got it because he realised that we don't learn anything if we already know all the answers. And one of the things that we have in the adolescent culture is, because I've raised three boys, three men now, and one of the things that we learn with an adolescent mind is you can't teach me anything because I already know. Dad, you know nothing. Suddenly, Dad learned a few things in the last few years. I don't know how I did, but somehow I did because they turned into men and they came back to me and go, Dad, you know stuff we, don't, we need to know. And that's why initiation is so important. The initiation that we talk about and the journey to becoming an author, and I want to say journey because initiation suggests it's an event, a moment in time, and it all happens right there. Well, like none of life happens right there. You know, you're conceived and then you're born and then you grow up and you go through puberty and, and you die. They're biological imperatives. They're going to happen to you whether you like it or not. 
But there's a whole lot of other things that happen to us in life. We have a lot of smaller shifts, smaller passages from one stage of life to the next. And it's a process, a journey. And so it's not like a one-size-fits-all, one event's going to do it all. And, and often that's the, the sales job we get in the world, that if I could just plug it in, instantly I've got manhood. It's a switch on the wall, because that's what everything else is. Or it's a course you go on, or a program you do, or something shrink-wrapped, which is tragically the white man's model. White fella thinks you can buy it, or you can learn it. You don't buy it or learn it, you do it. You do it. So, here we are. So I'm going to ask some questions. First, I'm going to say, write a line here. I must have a very good whiteboard marker, so I'm going to go with a red one. Tell me, just some words that describe what you think society says a man is. What's a man? Some words. Provider. Stupid. I heard provider and stupid. And, and stupid's true. Who's... The, um, the, the number one male figure that my boys were presented to through the media. Who do you think it was? Homer Simpson. And Bart was just as stupid as him. Marge and Lisa, they were really clever, but, but Homer and, and Bart, idiots. Idiots. And it's kind of like we all laugh, the buffoon. The, the man is the buffoon. Do you know we even have a word that we can label our women, say she's the fun police, because she's stopping us men being idiots. The problem is, is we're actually just having fun. We like having fun. But we often are seen as stupid. I also heard the word provider. Which I suppose, if you think about it, are two poles. Because provider is very serious. It means, it, and, and, and you know the number one language in which a man will love his family is by providing for him. Number one language. The problem is, is he keeps providing, he thinks it's who he is, and so he never stops. But that's a really key one. What are some other words? Teacher. Teacher. Do you know that, at least for white fellas, we don't have a lot of male teachers? When I grew up, all my teachers, except one year, were women. And, and because we have so much fatherless, such a massive father wound, in our, in our nation. And, and that's not a white fella problem, that's an Australian problem. In fact, I must say that's a global problem. We have so much fatherlessness in our world, so much a, a, an absence of father. And, the, and then the, the boy goes to school and he, all he gets is, is women teachers. And it's wonderful that women teach and they do such a great job, but where are the males? Men teachers, can you tell me about that? Growing up as a child, uh, dad was the head of the family, he was a provider, uh, he was the educator, mm. he uh, was a protector, and uh, well, there's so many, there's too many other words I could say about my father, um, and he just loved his children, loved his children, and one of the best ones, and uh, despite the circumstances, uh, it was always uh, looking at things, if there was something in the way of getting you where you wanted to go, he'd say, uh, you 
You just fulfilled the fifth commandment. Honour your mother and father that you may live long in the land. The only commandment attached to a blessing. And the beauty of that is it's not that we are meant to honour that which is dishonourable. The command, as I understand it, uh, a good Hebrew understanding of the word, is that we would live our lives in such a way that if anyone met us, they would assume we had honourable, an honourable father, honourable parents, because we are living lives of honour. And you had an honourable father. That's a blessing. Some other words. And, and, and both words that you would want a man to be and words that you, like, like idiot, that you sense society projects onto men. Because I want the whole gamut. <coughs> Pervert. We are 85%, this is the stat I've read, 85% of Christian men are addicted to porn. Something's terribly skew if, uh, and it's kind of even higher in in uh, you just general secular culture. In fact, porn is celebrated as a very valid expression of entertainment, and demeans women. It turns them into objects of desire that you spend a bit of money or whatever, and and use for gratification, but have no connection with. So there is this sense of pervert. That a man is not safe around children. That a man is someone who will use any human being for sexual gratification. And that's a, a, a huge wound in our world. Huge wound. Yeah? Do you think there's a link between not many men as teachers and what you've just been saying about the um, perception of pedophilia? I know plenty of people, including some young male teachers who have quit teaching because they're scared that if they have to go and put a bandage on a girl who bursts out in the playground on Yahoo, they're going to get accused of touching her inappropriately. So I know men are leading those caring roles for fear of that second topic you've just done. And they're not the men that will be doing that. That's just a perception. Fear perceptions. Yeah, you're touching on something here around what we're presented in society and culture around what men are. Rather than ask the question what men are, what men we see men as, we should be asking the question about what men aren't. And one of those questions, those those perceptions is that men aren't caring, men aren't loving, mm. men aren't intimate. Um, so so there you go. I'm gonna write this one. No emotion but what? Only one emotion a man's allowed to have? Anger. Anger. We aren't compassionate, we aren't empathetic, we aren't generous, we aren't caring. Because we have this hyper-masculine caricature which we all suck in, imbibe, the hero. The hero uses violence, violence to solve everything. So you realise that there are really damaging perceptions. This is why they say that 80% of domestic violence cases are caused by men. Mm. And you know what? That men are three times as likely to suicide than a woman. Three times as likely to suicide. So we can say that men are violent, but what I'm going to say is men don't know what to do with pain because the only valid expression of pain is anger. It's not that we are violent inherently, it's that we have not been 
given any language, emotional language for our pain that, that works. What are some other words? Love a drink. I'm going to also write into that sport because those two tend to go together, but often passively. You know, we just love to watch the footy or the cricket and get smashed or whatever it is. We'll go down to the pub and get drunk so that we can actually be vulnerable because it's about the only way a man can lubricate. He has to lubricate his body in order to be able to have express, express anything deep. Do you know that there's another emotion, and, and this won't come up on this side of the board, you won't ever see it, that there is an underlying emotion that men carry, all of us and myself very much included in this. Uh, and it's a very, very powerful emotion, and it's so powerful that, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of what happens. The, the, the man and the woman end up in conflict. And the man gets angry. And she's got all these words and they're coming at him. You won't talk to me. You don't engage with me. You don't listen to me. <clears throat> and he's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And he can't find the words and he doesn't know what's going on. And he's getting confused in his head. This happens because I'm also a counsellor. This happens in my room with, with couples and with men describing it to me. You know, man will not ever, ever share or rarely share when he is a victim of abuse. So I'm not saying, because there are women here, for a moment that domestic violence doesn't happen or isn't wrong. It's horrendous. But here's, here's what often happens. He knows he's not safe. And so what does he do? He walks away. Not always. But sometimes she follows. This happened in my own home. She follows. But yeah, yeah, you're just like your father. Got no balls. What are you? A wuss, aren't you? You're not going to turn around and talk to me. And then he flies off the handle and he explodes. Why does he explode? What's going on? What is the primary emotion that that woman has tapped into him? Pride. Not pride. Because pride, pride actually, healthy pride secures me. It's the exact opposite of pride, which is shame. So a man buries and covers over enormous amounts of shame. And shame is about a violation of my identity. My core is unstable. I don't know who I am. And the moment you say you're just like your father, that's the thing that's wounded me. Don't say that. Don't say that. You can see why men don't want to do their work because they're monsters lurking down there. Tell you a little bit about my story. I'm a um, uh, fifth generation white fella. My great 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 grandfather came out as a free settler in 1835 from Belfast, Ireland, because of the potato blight. And uh, they settled in Sydney. And uh, I've got my family tree. That's, that's the Fay in there. I'm the eldest son of the eldest son going back at least five generations, Patrick, Edward's father. So Ed, Patrick is my great, 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 great grandfather. And he said goodbye to his son, Edward, his son, John, his son, Edward, his son, Edward, his son, Edward. That was my father, I'm Richard Edward. Um, my grandmother died giving birth to my dad. And my father was raised by his grandmother and then by a single aunt. My grandfather in grief remarried in haste because he didn't want to be alone, 23 years old, lost his wife 
giving birth to my dad. And so what he did is he remarried. His second wife knew that he was still in love with his first wife who died. And so she was jealous of his first wife and anything that, that, that reminded her of that marriage, which of course was my son. So my grandfather and step-grandmother had two more children, but my father was never allowed in the family home, kept out. He went and worked for his stepbrother and his dad every day, and I was his only son. So of course, I, I as a 10-year-old boy reminded of the 10-year-old, five-year-old boy reminded him of the five-year-old boy who was abandoned and rejected by his own father and who never had a mother. And then he marries my mother. My father had no sense of his own inner worth and strength. Even though he had a faith, he had no sense of it. And my mother desperately wanted connection. And her story is another one. It's more complex than, than I can tell you, except to say very quickly, her older sister died at the age of three of whooping cough. And so she had a, a, a mother who was terribly possessive of her, which created great insecurity in her. And so she needed connection with my father to feel secure. But my father was terrified that he didn't have anything to give her, so he would run away from her. So what would she do? She'd follow him. Because if he blowed up, if he screamed at her, he hit her, hit her. if he went out the door, slammed the door, if he hit things, at least she's getting connection. Even an abusive connection was better than none at all. She didn't know this logically, but I would watch it happen and go, please don't start this again. No, not again. I know, Mum, what you're going to do is going to create more violence in the home. I can't handle that. I couldn't stop it. My father did not know he, who he was because he never had men, and it isn't a man, it's men, to show him what it means to be a man. I, I remember a story with my 10-year-old boy. I went and saw one really crappy Disney movie with my 10-year-old son, my younger son, and he put his head, we're watching the movie and I'm kind of disengaged, and he put his head right there on my shoulder, just like forgetfully, didn't, you know, Easily, just like he's entering my space without even a second thought, watching the movie. And because the movie was so bad, I disengaged from it and I started crying. And I just started sobbing. And I'm trying to hold it in because I don't want him to notice that his head on my shoulder is wounding me. Why? Because I never knew that. I never knew that easy intimacy, that relaxed presence with my dad. Never once, never took me camping, fishing, never took me out to the bush, never took me to sporting events. Because he never knew how to do that because it was never modeled for him. My son has this, but I never knew it. Of course, the healing came through accepting the easy comfort that my son knew with me. You see, my son was secure in his masculinity at the age of 10. And there I was at the age of 50, insecure in my masculinity. And I learned through his ease, which I had demonstrated in my relationship with him, that I could be comfortable my own skin which was part of my growth you might say at 50 well better late than never I guess what are some other words that go in here Jonathan or one of our Indigenous brothers to, to jump in here, but I know for us white fellas, 
the one question that we ask as teenagers is teenage boys, have I got what it takes? Have I got what it takes? It's like, you know, when he's the cowboy or the, the, the larrikin, he, put, he puts a Superman cape on. That's, that's what we do. Um, you know, we act like idiots. Um, jump off walls. Show off our biceps for chicks or a six-pack, as my, my younger son does. Um, you think that that's what masculinity is. But it's foolish and stupid, but he's actually asking the question, I need to know, have I got what it takes? In other words, that's the very fear, I don't have what it takes. I'm actually not a man. I look at all the other men. I'm looking at you and going, man, you've got a goatee, I can't grow a beard, so there must be something wrong with me. You, know, you look at men always evaluating, am I a man? He's a man, I'm not a man. Because you feel it inside you. And, and, and what we'll often do is, is avoid or we'll keep superficial. We won't be vulnerable. We won't let a man see us or men see us. Did you, Indigenous brothers, do you want to throw into that? Because your wounding is not that different to ours. But can you just, uh, what's the question do, do your teenage boys ask the question, have I got what it takes? Is that the question they're asking? Well, I'm just speaking for myself. Um, as I was growing up, I was, it, it was reinforced to me uh, that I was good enough. Um, that um, I had the ability be and to do whatever I uh, wanted to achieve. That's the bit my father's input in my life. Um, but there were times, and this is only my coming from within me, I felt uh, inadequate, I wasn't good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone wants to be Sura Rioli, don't they? Everyone wants to be Superman. Everyone wants to be able to do amazing things. Well, I come from New South Wales. We play rugby there. Yeah. I come from Queensland. We do too, but AFL's better. Anyway, I'm going to that. <laughs> I think it's a, it's, a, um, it's a growing thing as you grow as a, grow as a man, uh, as you grow as a, as a, and finding your own identity along with the wisdom of the Father. But you just said something really powerful, your own identity. Yeah. You notice that identity is, is discovered within. It's not found by mimicking, but that's what teenagers will do. They'll mimic what they see around them. That's why they need wise elders, because they're looking for someone. Is that a man? Is, is that a man? And they're going to imitate whoever they see.
still not knowing who he is or you know, not having that fatherly role um, to help him. You, we look at cultural identity, okay, and I'm strong with what, what I know about who my people are and where mm. I'm from. And that's something we're taught from a young age. Yeah. But then my mother, she's taken that male role because she knew that if we didn't learn what needed to be done as a man to look after now my wife and kids. And I'm thankful for her for that because now I know that my kids don't need to go through what I went through. Mm. You know, they don't need to have that single parent background. Mm. And a lot of Aboriginal families have that. Yeah. But you know, you, ha you, you have it because of generational trauma that we did, did to you. So how do you, how do you how do you work through that? Part of that yeah. And that, yeah, and that's that hard struggle we go through as a community, as an Aboriginal community, every day of our lives. Mm. We, it, it's it's one of those things that's always there in our mind. But you, you you do have something which I heard you say, and that is, I know my people, and I know I belong to my people, and I know their story. Well, my people don't have a story. But Not only is my skin vanilla, my soul is too, because my culture has no story. So we're reclaiming. A story and we have to borrow from you to have a story because we don't have one our story is basics Donald Trump do I need to explain anymore <laughs> but, but you will laugh but that is it that is what happens to a man who is not anchored in his people and his people have no story it is all about me it is all about money it is all about power it is Say so we talk about white privilege. Most white fellows who, are, who don't understand that, that that terminology around what privilege means have issues with it because they don't accept it. But mm. so it actually brings shame and guilt rather than so, just saying actually that is my story. Uh, I am part of the colonisers. I'm part of the history of this nation. I do have a story, but it's not it's not um, you know maybe as deep as thousands of years of culture that's carried on today. It's, it's not as it doesn't make me feel as proud about myself, but it is still part of the story. I think that's where blackfellas, like Aboriginal people, we feel we get insecure about our own culture because we're still trying to find our own culture and then um, non-Aboriginal people are trying to steal that from us, trying to borrow it. Mm. Whereas we want you to just be proud of your own story. We have to find a story and that's, that has been a problem because... Yeah, our, our culture might not be white, I think. Like, because I think white is this term that we use now to so, talk about a whole lot of different, what used to be a whole lot of different cultures and now it doesn't mean anything. It's like well, white, blankness. Well, well, exactly, because of the breakdown of, of, of faith as a central story. So, you know, my grandparents would identify as Anglican or as Catholic or as Uniting or Presbyterian or whatever. And those stories are getting broken down. My, my children and their peers, well, my children have a faith story which anchors them uh, and it gives them a context for their existence and it goes back generations. But most of their peers don't have any story at all. Um, not, not one that's coherent. It's a fragmented story. There's little pieces. And what we're seeking to do, so I, I, and I guess I, I jump here. Can I give a quick example? Mm. Um, my, most of my family are from rural Victoria. Um, but there was a point I realised I actually didn't know who they were. Mm -hmm. um, and I... Um, had the blessing of being <coughs> and did some 
family history stuff in Cornwall, but also learned about um, how I've got some Chinese ancestry as well. The Chinese bloke came for the gold rush in the 1850s. And it was as I learned more about who I am and where I come from that my sense of identity started becoming more grounded and more settled. But it was only then that I actually started becoming more comfortable with engaging with the indigenous world. Because I started having a, a deeper sense of who I was. And then I realised that, and I think this is a, the case for a lot of non-Indigenous people in this country, if you don't know who you are, then you're going to be subconsciously threatened by people who do know who you are. And I think that's where a lot of the, the brokenness between Indigenous and non-Indigenous might come from. Because you guys know who you are. Well, that's, that's a mistruth as well. Not everybody knows who they are. Well, that's true because mm -hmm. our culture is destroyed. We don't have, you know, blackfellas, there's an assumption that blackfellas know who they are, but we're all impacted by colonisation in some yeah. way. Yeah. And so we don't, but that's where the, the lack of connection comes because if whitefellas <laughs> could approach blackfellas and saying, I'm learning about my journey, yeah, yeah. blackfellas would be able to engage in that space in collegiality and mutuality because you're both there for the same reason. Yeah. Whereas whitefellas come over the top of us and say, you all don't know who your culture is. You don't know who you are. I don't. It's my people have done. So what's your story? I don't know. And then Buffalo's retreat from that because we don't want to share our deep-seated insecurities unless you do. Yeah. That's yeah. part of our culture. Yeah. We come together and we both share. Yeah. Richard, yeah, okay. sorry, did can Wanda just share something? Yeah. Can you just talk about home? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You want? Yeah.
width and within. So all within and all, everything that after my aunt grew up and hearing all his stories, his songs, all through the five things again. Mm. I can't say about an indigenous way. But that's it. Mm. He, he was saying, uh, yeah, you've got to become your own. Yeah. Your home is a, a female version of perhaps this one here. Hold on, this is a concrete. <laughs> <laughs> but up there, it's real. Yeah, it's looking about honoring women. Yeah, and how you be a provider for that. Mm. So, the main saying for, for this, uh, you call it country, but I call it Mura, for this Mura. <laughs> but the translation <coughs> to exist in the homeland of the kangaroo, you have to understand the Inu who will teach you to soar like the witch there or the eagle. That main saying is all through the Murapuru. Yeah. Nothing to do with health. If you're born here, your responsibility. Mm. sits in the context of what we're talking about today in terms of your you happy for me to explain just to where that sort of fits so traditionally we're, we're talking about a discourse a, a remote and an urban discourse we've got remote aboriginal people we've got urban aboriginal people and we've got everybody in between most of us probably go in between you know between bush and urban stuff you know we go kfc then we go kangaroo next day you know? and we spend our life between that trying to find out a part where we fit 
And so what we do is we, we find mob that we know, like Genevieve and all the traditional mob, we find our family there, we connect with them, and then they connect with us in the urban setting. When it comes to the issue of being a man, becoming a man, our law teaches, our original traditional law, there's two things around it. Traditional ideals and the current reality of our existence. We're taught that you're, you become a man on your country, that you're connected to who you are, your people, your language, where you're, what your law is. You know, Emil, anything, like anything your law could be kangaroo, could be Emil, could be that West Thai legal. You're taught that storyline. That's the only thing you have to worry about, as long as you're sitting down on country. And this is what a man is, and I'll give you, everyone will be explained what a man is. He's a provider, he's a hunter, he's a gatherer, he's a storyteller, you know, he's a singer, he's a dancer, he's these things. He cries when everybody else cries. He doesn't stand up on his own, he stands up with all his chore, all his mother, all his countrymen around him. No one does anything individual, everyone does everything together. That's our ideal system. Now, we're no different in a, in a, in a white collar sense or a dominant culture sense because we're taught that too. This is what a man should be like. But everybody knows that the reality of colonisation in this nation is we're not, that's not what we see. We're told that this is what I'm supposed to be, but all around me I'm surrounded by men who are drunks, men who white bashes, men who swear all the time, men who fight, men who withdraw when they have to have responsibility, men who aren't that way. So what do we follow? We follow what we see, right? And the discourse around this is, where do I fit in that if I'm not connected to my country? I don't know who I am, I don't know where I come from. We lost, we lost together as men. And that's what we're taught a cultural way, but the reality is most young fellas in this room, and my young fella there has just become a man. He's gone through traditional ceremonies. He has to now find where he fits in that urban setting, in between them worlds. And the only way that he'll know who to follow to become a man is if he has those men around him to follow. The problem is we don't have that many men around us, and we have to discover that for ourselves. And our journey is not about living that ideal, it's about finding out what our reality is and touching base with other people. Identity. Identity. Now, this home doesn't belong to the uniform or the lion. It belongs to the angry enemy. This is, this is a child, but it comes from mother. 
Yes. Yes. We express the same. Uh, the approach, can I, can I share? The approach that we use is very Franciscan, so that what we see is that the land is our kin. We often have a perceptive that we, we, we have this really unfortunate word um, to have dominion, to have, to have dominion over creation. Dominion gets interpreted because the word is so similar as domination. So we must conquer, we must pave over, we must kill, we must dig up, we must sell, we must possess, we must control, we must conquer. So dominion is a very unhelpful word for, for white men because we've interpreted it as domination. And so we found it very helpful within our own tradition and it is a Christian tradition, we found that the, the Franciscan understanding of kinship, that tree is my brother. That tree is my brother. And I respect that tree because it has been here before I was and it will be here after I am. And it has wisdom to teach me if I can be fully present to even a tree. And, and the Australian landscape, you know, this is some, something that is, is greater than in our indigenous brothers or white, white fellows. The, this land is so richly spiritual that it gets into your veins. I'm sure anyone who's lived here for long enough or born here knows it. You ache for it. I do. I ache for it. Here's my family. And, and we do a lot of our work our rites of passage we do in the bush necessarily because it connects men with themselves because it connects them with their mother it connects them with that which gave them birth which is shared yeah it's really fascinating all this story so if I and I'm all at home and with uh, my mom sharing this story Because we're not in a right position of explaining this, 
Life has no direction because you respect no no direction. Yeah. Your only direction is if you do ignore ignore it. Right. Mm. So why is that? Look at this hand. What shape does it give to us? that 
rites of passage and initiation is in many ways about teaching the young boy what the boundaries are of being a man so he does not misuse them, uh, doesn't misuse his power and become dangerous or destructive to his family and to his community. And we look around, there are a lot of young men today, I see a lot of young men being destructive to themselves and to their families and their communities because they don't have boundaries around them about what it actually means to behave like a man. And they don't have older men that they respect around them that they're afraid of those men looking at it saying, you're not acting like a man. And that's that contrast to, to the point of what Richie was saying earlier, which is that our, our, our social construct tells us that when we become a man, we act like that, yep. stupid and da-da-da. Yep. Culturally, Aboriginal boys can do what they like. Yep. Boys can climb up trees and run on, you know, run on the road, and they can do what they like, little boys. But when you become a man, when it's time to be, the struggle that Aboriginal young men have is then how to reel that in. Yeah. How to become controlled, yeah. sensible, and yeah. you know, <coughs> that's exactly the same. Yeah. And um, yeah. and to look after your country. Yeah. yeah. I know that because I my father, my father, so I come from the top end of the Pilbara, anybody know? Um, anybody know them? And first I'm a real good, I'm so junior. My father from the top end, and my mother from the bottom end. But I believe in my heart. That's how God put them together. And and I trusted the Lord. And one day, I've been up to my father's hundred. And I know it all of them. And I've got, I've got hundreds of cousins out there. But you know what? When I got up there, I have to go up there and I'll tell them that they look after the country. And they love the country that much. They respect it. But when they go through law, then the old people say, look after your country now. Don't go into town and act like an idiot. This is your land. <coughs> and you look after it. And it's different. And then down in South Australia, bottom end, I see it differently here than Sejuna. And I see my people from the United States, South Australia, calling it the Adelaide, because I live in Adelaide, and when I see them, I'm saying, hey, what are you doing here? Go back home. You don't belong here. You've got to look after the country. But the old people can tell me, I tell you. But that's how black folk messages go around too. But I'm Indian, I know. That's all. That's fine. Can I? I want to share just uh, a little bit of my journey in terms of my experience um, in identity itself. Um, we've talked about some traditional stuff here. I didn't grow up in the traditional scene. I didn't have the privilege of doing that as an Aboriginal man. Um, the dispossession of the land didn't accommodate for us in the, in the East. So um, our traditional ways from um, Port Stephens and, and Newcastle area uh, was all taken. It was it was colonised. It was it was made very Western. So my mum and that were put onto the mission. And from the mission, um, my mum sort of didn't like that. She ran away, and they locked her up and put her in a boarding home where she was taught the Western way of doing writing. She's a very good writer. She can speak. She can 
do all those those things. She's she, and she's a beautiful woman. I love her very much. But she married a white man, and um, again, um, he was the black sheep of his family. He was he was ostracized by his parents. He was just there. So here we have already the beginning of an identity crisis that started for me before I was even born. Make sense? So here we're going to see some generational stuff that's coming now. So as I was born, the rejection is that my grandmother didn't want a male, she wanted a female as a child. So there was a rejection issue there. Now whether I realised or not, the way that I was treated by her actually had influence on basically how I was growing up because you get ostracised in, in the family thing. So here we see dispossession. We see a white, the black woman getting married. We have a child then who has um, been rejected by family members. Can you see a moulding happening here? So when we talk about identity crisis, it's more that it's bigger. It's a bigger picture from from this point. And then when I was growing up, I was abused by males. So identity crisis comes in again. And then and traumas that come with that. And then coming into a school saying, you know, where do I fit? Because I've got my Aboriginal family over here that my uncles and aunties sort of raised me because my dad also committed suicide and shot himself at the age of five. So uncles and aunties sort of raised that. So there's a bit of identity crisis that sits there. And then I'm coming into this Western school and trying to work out who I am in this process. Now, I was confused in a lot of that stuff. I had identity crisis and the enemy, the devil, so I'm putting it down to, um, had a field day with my life. There was many times that I didn't want to exist in the earth because I was so confused and, and shattered by just this journey. Now, I didn't understand it all. I didn't, couldn't comprehend it. Uh, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, I couldn't even go to my uncles and aunties and talk to, talk to them because they didn't even understand it because they didn't even see it because they went through their own struggles in the process of dispossession from, from the Western culture right there. And, and, and the journey became there. But where I found my solitude in terms of my identity was actually um, in God. God restored stuff back to me that I just I couldn't find anywhere else. I just couldn't do it. Um, I, I went to, to elder people and they, they, because they were struggling with the issues themselves, they couldn't come up with solutions or couldn't come up with answers. And so it was every part of this, in terms of the cultural stuff, I had to ask for forgiveness for what had happened to the disposition of, of me. I had to ask for forgiveness for, for um, the dispossession of rejection of my grandmother to me. I had to ask forgiveness for the ostracization that I went through in school and that sort of stuff. I had to ask for forgiveness for the abuse that happened to me in the process of all that. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Are you saying you ask forgiveness for them or for you? Both. Forgive? If we don't forgive, we're sinning. Because there's no... The, the Bible tells us that we've got to forgive continuously, regardless of what's been done. And so I had to come to that place because I was angry... I was hurt. I hated white people. When I went to school, all I was taught was about colonisation and the Western way of how Australia was formed and how good it was. And because I didn't grow up in, a, in, a, in the cultural context, I didn't know any different except the family that I was around. So as I started doing my own research about my history of my family and listened to what happened to them, I became very angry. 
very hurt inside. And I was very bitter for a very long time. And uh, through that bitterness, I had to come to resolution. And as I read the scriptures, the scripture says, God is a God of reconciliation. And I didn't understand that word for a long time. But as I came to that point, I had to get my identity, and I found my identity in Him. Now, one thing I've learned when we talk about identity is that we have a culture, we have cultural settings that God has given every man on earth, whether it's white, whether it's black, it's all different cultures that sit there. But the kingdom culture supersedes all of that and fits quite well into every part of that. And that's what filtrations brings through that m makes a good understanding of somebody's identity and who they are in that culture. And, and Uncle's talked about that because God has given us the stories. God has given everything that sits in a culture that makes significance to the people, no matter where you are, no matter what you do. So for me, as I came to that point, I have a, such a good identity of who I am, where I come from, who my people are. I, I know that, you know, but I'll come from a kingdom perspective and everything because God supersedes because he gave me that culture. He gave me those things. And I'll always look at it from that perspective in terms of how I live and breathe. And part of my thing now, because of my own journey, because of my own pain, because of the own hurts that sits, that have sat within me over the years, the struggles that I have, is that now... I want to see people come into their own, into their own identity. That's why I sit with these Johnzo and I go over there and talk about this stuff that's happening up in, up in the territory and how do we do that? So what does that look like? I go and sit with other leaders and we talk through that stuff. And then we bring it into young adults and we start teaching that stuff, the way that you keep moving and acting and living and breathing every day. And it's going to fit different in every scene because every scene is going to be different for the cultural aspects. So if we, t we talk of the more of a traditional way of doing things, God's going to fit it well in there. Because his glove, his hand, uh, if, you, if you use the cultural context of everything, his, the cultural context is the glove, and his hand fits in it quite well in every aspect. And then when that gives life and identity to them, who I am. And here I am today, and I just, I, I honestly, I, all I can do is just give thanks to God, because, you know, from all this mess, dispossession, you know, the brokenness of rejection of my family, the abuse that happened in there, the confusion there that the enemy has placed upon all of this in my life has now, now been resolved. And I thank God for it. Because he's, he's the only one that brought me to the place. Hey, can I just ask you a question? Sure. With this process you've been through, is there any point where you're aware of insulation? Um, in terms of? In terms of you coming into your identity in God Look, I, I, I can't say there was a Shazam moment. I think it was an absolute process. I remember going through a time where for a whole year, basically, I avoided people because I just couldn't cope with life. I'd go to church and I'd be so absent there that anybody who came near me, I just couldn't cope with them being with me because I was just struggling with who I am. I, I honestly didn't know. I was so confused. I'm thinking, you know, these fellas, I'm talking about these fellas up here, they go out the bush, they know this stuff. I didn't know this stuff. I didn't know, that, that was all taken away from our family, you know. Mum and that was put on the missions and that they only learnt what, you know, this is how I'm going to teach you, is that I'm going to spoon feed you. And you need to be relying on me as a government. That's all we knew. And then when they came off the missions and they were allowed to do that, and when my uncles and that went to war, they came back and they weren't even allowed to go to the pubs. They weren't even allowed to do those things. They weren't allowed to be still connected into the good Australian way. Right? So we struggle with all this sort of stuff. And, and it, it came to that place. So. Thank you. I chuck that question out to them all. Got people in the room. But that question you just had then. 
the question I just asked, yeah. Yeah. Well, Cole was just wondering about the, um, sorry, what was your name? Michael. Michael, the journey Michael had been on, on uh, in finding his identity um, in, in a God without having had the advantage of a group or a clan or a tribe to, to help you in that. It must have been quite a, an individual journey, was it? It was, but I did have like I did have family around me. Don't don't get me wrong that the family wasn't there because I had uncles and aunties and things that were there. But they just didn't have the answers. So I still had that support that was there, but in turn of it, it was a personal thing that I had to go yeah. I had I had to find I think God was finding me more than anything. Sure. So um, I guess just the question I was having in the context of all that, did you personally were aware of a, like a time or a um, uh, a, a process of initiation for yourself first mm-hmm. entry. I, I, yeah. I can't think of any particular time that no, just that's 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 Jacob had an initiation when he wrestled with a man in the night. Uh, I could keep going. David had very much an initiation. Um, Abraham had an initiation. Trembling, trembling. Uh, And Moses, barefoot in front of a burning bush, had an initiation. So I I use the scriptures that I recognize. Uh, Jesus had his initiation. I, 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 30 days in the wilderness on his own. On 40 days, sorry, six weeks. Try six weeks, sun up, sun down, nothing, nothing, nothing. No books, no people, nothing. Earringing silence for six weeks on your own. That's going to do you in or it's going to initiate you. Welcome to our world. Welcome to bush camp, isn't it? <laughs> we, 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 we take, so just because I wanted to share a little bit of what we are about, we, we take... Uh, men away for five days it you can't do it in under five days it's not a retreat this is not a fun thing this is not a box ticking exercise and it's hard work it's hard yakka because you are going to confront yourself you're going to confront the parts that you don't include you don't like you've always judged or shamed and run from or medicated and we do it in nature because of this because you've got to become home within yourself and there's parts of you that you've never welcomed home you can, if you aren't if you don't have a hospitality hospitality of self, you don't have a hospitality for others. Because everything you exclude in yourself, you will project onto others. That's where racism comes from. The part to me I don't include, so I'm just it's easy to scapegoat that fella. He's or, or that mob. So easy to do it. Or even scapegoat myself. I'm just hopeless. I'm a waste of space. So initiation, and, and we don't initiate, now the initiation that we do is not for young fellas. We do a different initiation. Why? Because there wasn't one. And, and we're, we're typically men in our 30s and 40s and 50s who are crying out for something. We, we need to be initiated. We also know it's really hard to do it on our, on our own. And so we have a group of elders that come around and provide a space. They keep the edges very hot. So men coming in on a rites of initiation uh, it's not like they're going to get mothered. They're not going to get um, 
you know, they're there, it's okay. Or, or hugs when, they, when men cry. Men need to weep on their own. They need to process it. It sounds a little hard, but that's exactly what I... Because a man's going to need to do this work. They just have to be hot. And we've been doing this now. This will be our, our ninth consecutive year that we've been running a rites of initiation. Typically 30 men, 40 men in wilderness. They sleep in reasonably comfortable places and they eat nice food. But the rest of it's work done in a sacred space. A safe space set apart where there are no phones, no outside distractions, no women. Women don't do this work with men. They don't watch men do this work. And so there would be common elements between uh, your mob and our mob that, that I'm describing. Some of those things that are necessary because you leave your ordinary world and you enter a special world, a world where everything is, is, is symbolic. Everything is myth and story. Story has, has depth and quality to it. Now, it's not all rational. It's not all up in your head and you can't work it out. Like I, I even, even that... Your mind is kind of half aware of it, but you know there's much more to it. It's taking you deeper. And so we do that. We do it without a lot of teaching. We do it with a lot of drama and, and, and symbol and silence. Silence is incredibly powerful. Like I, I just described Jesus in the wilderness. And as I said, our experience is that men will often hit White fellas often hit 45 and they've done, they've done, they followed the rules, they're all the right thing. They know what the rules are and I was one of them. Good husband, good father, faithful provider, diligent. I, you know, as far as what it meant to be a man, I know I was a man. I had no idea why life was falling apart for me. No idea at all. Uh, Carl Jung says that we reach this point typically in our 40s, where everything we've learned, every, all the tools that we've been given for life suddenly stop working, suddenly stop working. And it's because we're being invited into elderhood. And we don't even know what elderhood is in a world where we don't even have elders, as you didn't. And the problem is, is because we don't have elders, we have to, like you've discovered, you have to become one. This world won't have elders unless we become elders. Most of us, we're doing a half-decent job at being men. We're doing pretty hard. I, I'm talking to this room here. You know you fall over. You know you fail. In your worst moments, you, you have a real sense of shame about your struggle. But you know there's something more. It's like your journey has not ended. Because I've got journey up there. And we talked about ritual. And ritual is simply a ceremonial container for profound truth a ceremonial container for profound truth where you are immersed in the truth experientially dynamically where it goes levels deeper than what you'd ever experience in your ordinary world story and how powerful and how important story is I, I, I love hearing the connection the synthesis and recognizing that I have no right, because I, it's not my story, to initiate an indigenous man, boy, into manhood. But I have every right to help initiate a white fella into manhood and elderhood because they are my kin, they are my, my mob. And because I've gone on that journey myself. 
you only ever do a rites of initiation once. You don't do it multiple times. But it's not the end. It's not. It's a process. It begins a process. And I, I recognize that process is going on. And there are brothers in this room who have gone on that process. And while we come from a Christian tradition, we have men from outside that tradition go on the rites from other traditions. You, you must consider that there has to be a definition and this is where the challenge is, is when you talk about initiation obviously you're moving it's a journey yep. it's, it's the whole understanding of what the definition is Yes. quite often defines whether you've been initiated into that or not so for example you know, we, we've done a lot of work with guys in the prison system and they talk about an initiation. But it's not the initiation that we talk about. Uh, it's about what makes them a man in the sense of how they see a man. And that is to jump in a police car and outrun the police and they're a man. You know, so yeah. it, it really, when you talk about initiation and what it means to be a man, you've got to get the definition right. Um, uh, we, we do have five promises of initiation. Five promises of male initiation is are these, and I'm drawing up here. One, life is hard. Life is hard. So stop trying to avoid the consequences of your actions. Face up to them. Stop trying to squirm out of it. Stop trying to grumble and moan and complain when things don't go your way. Life is hard. You are not in control. Now, that's a white fella story. We've known power and abused power and recognised power altogether wrong. But we have to learn to take back our power is actually to surrender control. It's, I know it sounds a paradox, but to take back our power means to surrender control. This whole conference is called Surrender. Um, it's not about you. <laughs> Uh, it, life isn't about me. It's actually about life. The narcissism that we have in our society is in, in our white fellow society and probably pretty pre prevalent everywhere. How do we shift men to a place where it's not about them? Um, for you are not that important. We don't actually notice that most of what we do in the first half of life is about us. Even the noble stuff. If we're involved in social justice, the way we do it's better than the way other people do it. I'm involved in social justice and everyone else should be. I care about the poor and the marginalised and everyone else should. And, and there is often a lot of ego invested in it, a lot of anger. And then you can tell the, that that can often be um, coming from wanting to prove what I'm doing is more important. And the fifth one, which is probably the most important, you are going to die. To embrace, to die before you die, to truly let your ego fail. See, it's not about you, but you are about life. You're not that important, but you are known. You are part of something great. So the stars are one of the ways in which we've always 
initiated boys into saying it's not about becoming a star on X Factor or The Voice or whatever. It's about seeing the heavens and knowing you belong to that. That's yours. That's yours. You're part of something great. And I drew this diagram because we have our ordinary life where we feel like we're in control of what's going on or we want to be in control of what's going on. And we, we enter into a special world. And in this special world or special life, we experience suffering because no longer are we running from it. We taste death and death is very much about grief. The things that we never were, the things that we wished would have been, the things that will never happen. When you're a 45, 50 year old man, you're going to have to acknowledge that some of the things you thought you were going to be will never happen. And for a man, that can be really destabilizing. You can get very bitter and that's a path a lot of men take, grumpy old men. And then of course, ultimately authentic life. An authentic life is only tasted from a man who's done that journey. But this grief also has within it an emptiness. An emptiness that I'm not seeking to fill. It's the body in the grave. I'm waiting. I'm patient. And I'm not looking for anything. I'm just waiting. What am I waiting for? I don't know. But I'm waiting. Because a man wants at this point to run back to this. And this is where alcohol, someone wrote, and I could have added drugs and sport becomes such distractions. And of course, provider work becomes an addiction. Work's the noble addiction, the thing that caused me to burn out. You know what I'm trying to say is that a man, definition of what a man is, Does anyone want to offer a universal definition for a man? Someone who knows who he is and someone who has an understanding of his own place in the world. His own place in the world. Place in the world. How does that sit with you? I reckon that you could add an extra bit to that. So a man that is in touch with his emotions as well. Mm. Yeah. When we talk about that as we are, we've been talking about, about that with our young ads at the moment, you know. When you've got an emotion and you're too scared to talk about it, mm. there's something underneath it that you need to get in. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, from Michael's question before, you know, even my journey, I'm forever learning about how to be a man, how to be a strong, urbanised Aboriginal man, even though I know where I come from and who I am. Whatever else in the community, you know, and but you can never pinpoint it. 
you're always on a journey on how to become hmm. that stronger man and that man that you should be. Wanta last year sh- showed us um, Yawana, the bleeding wound, hmm. floored me. I was, I was a mess for four days because it, it had me floored. I was looking at this fight for four nights, still trying to process it because Wanta floored me. I was still, I'm still, you know, it's another learning process. You notice how the power of story transformed you, but it actually plunged you into crisis, and that did the work. That's right, and you know, and it's never, it, it's a never-ending process. I've got a diagram here of um, a white man holding a black man, or a black man holding a white man. So it includes all of us, and what it represents is actually embracing our shadow. The thing that we hate, the thing that's wounded us, the thing that we'd hide from everyone, the thing that we don't like. When we include all our opposites, when we include all our contradictions, we become a man. All the energies that oppose each other. All the things that we go, that's not me, I wouldn't want to be like that. Actually, if you can see it in yourself and bring it home, bring it home, include all of your opposite energies and include them, unify them then you become a a whole man. A whole man is not a man who has no imperfection. A whole man is a man who owns and knows his imperfections and has brought them home. I want to honour what you said because I think that sense of home in this land and within himself, that is a man. That is a man. He is always... He is, and I said this actually to a man last night. A man is someone who is always at home. He's like a tree. Planted by streams of living water. He will yield, he will yield to the wind, but he will not break. He'll be flexible. What are you? And of course, it's half past three, and we we could go for hours. Yeah.
to, to hear the lesson that life is going to teach you and you're more likely to grasp that lesson if you have elders who have walked the path before you who are part of teaching that lesson. And then, and then you already are. See, there's a dominant cultural construct that says we have to become, we have to achieve. The Bible says that we're always children of God. It's whether or not we, we acknowledge it, we are. It's we're always Aboriginal people, whether we acknowledge it, whether we believe that we are or not. We're, all, we're born men. We are always, we're born as men. That, that construct up there is completely disrespectful to Aboriginal people because we're taught that from the day we die, from the day we're born. That we're nobody. That we're not in control. No, that's a white, that's a white man's story. We need to know it. You don't. We need to. Because we're dominant. You see, we're, in, we're, we're the ones who don't know this is our truth. We need to flip it on our head And thank you, because that's absolutely true. That, that's what's wounded you. That's what needs to wound us. Does that make sense? This is one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.